I invite you to come and stand and preach after that. <laughs> I, uh, I propose that we dispense of the sermon and we get on with the burning of the note. And uh, wow, this is great. I'm unaccustomed to preaching without there being an offertory. I asked preachers a lot of times when they would use, uh, when they would prepare their sermons, and we would talk about the different schedules that we would work when preparing sermons, and some would say, well, I would start on Monday and work all during the week. And uh, some would say, well, I devote Friday and Saturday. Some of them would say, I devote Saturday, or some of them would say, I get up early on Sunday morning and prepare my sermon, and I ask them, then what do you do during the offertory? That wasn't a joke, Mark. That was just a, you know, Mark had asked me not to tell a joke, so. But it's wonderful to be here. So many memories have flooded my brain over the last several days as I have thought about this, and I know they have for you as well as we come together to celebrate a significant day in the life of this church. And I think it's only natural that you invite the one who got you into debt to come back and burn the note for the debt. But it's been so fun to talk to folks over the last uh, week or so and to see you this morning. It's just so wonderful to be here. I can't tell you what it means to me to stand here this morning and to have an opportunity to share with you uh, some stories uh, from the history of this church. But putting that in the context of the story of Moses' call and how he would fulfill his call and those faithful steps that he would take in the time afterward. It is my pleasure and honor to be here with you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable, acceptable to you, our creator, our redeemer, and our sustainer. Amen. Well, Happy New Year. I know it's not the new year, we're a week into it, so those of you who probably have made resolutions have had plenty of time now to break those resolutions. But it's a time in which we reevaluate where we have been and where we are in our lives and where we will go from here and how we will move on from this moment and this time. There's a story about a runner by the name of Roger Bannister, who was the first runner to break the four-minute mile in what May, on May the 6th of 1954. Roger Bannister ran the mile in three minutes, 59.4 seconds. The first man to run less than a four-minute mile. It would be less than two months later that Don Landy would break his record, and he would run it in three minutes, uh, 59 seconds, or uh, 57.9 seconds. Uh, later that year, in August the 7th, 1954, the two, Roger Bannister and John Landy, would run together in what would be called the Miracle Mile. It was pitting these two uh, record-breaking runners head-to-head -head in what was called the Miracle Mile or the Mile of the Century. And they ran that mile, and during most of the, the race, John Landy led. And it came down to the last lap, and John Landy was still in the lead. But he was troubled by one question that he kept asking himself over and over and over again, where is Bannister? Where is Bannister? He knew he was behind him, but he didn't know how far behind him he was. 
So coming down to the end of the race, he couldn't stand it any longer and finally turned around and looked behind him to find out where Bannister was. And at that moment that he turned around, Roger Bannister, with a burst of energy, sped past him and won the race. Later on, in an interview with Time Magazine, uh, John Landy was asked about that, and he said, if I hadn't have turned and looked back, I would have won the race. Now, I know that there are things that we don't want to leave behind. The loss of a loved one that's always going to be a part of our lives. We don't want to leave that behind. Maybe a mistake that we made, make, uh, mistakes that were made and lessons that were learned. Maybe there are changes in our life that, um, that happened last year and it happened to lead to us in, in a greater personal growth. Those are things that we don't want to leave behind because they make us who we are, but we have this tendency sometimes to cling to the past and make excuses. When we have an opportunity to rise above the past and make a difference. Moses was running from his past. When he was living in Egypt, he murdered a, an Egyptian overseer whom he saw beating a Hebrew slave. And fearing for his life, knowing that eventually Pharaoh was going to know about his crime and he would be punished for that, he ran from that experience and he ran to Midian. He was running for his life. He was running from his past, and he ran to Midian. And there he kind of set up a comfortable lifestyle, a household. He married Zipporah, the daughter of, of Jethro, who was a priest of Midian. He had a son. He had a comfortable life, a, a risk-free life, a secure life. And he lived there for a while, working for his father-in-law, keeping Jethro's sheep out in the wilderness. One day, a day just like any other day, one particular day he was out in the wilderness tending Jethro's sheep and something caught his attention. A bush that was burning that was not being consumed. And his interest was piqued. His um, curiosity was aroused. And he turned toward that and said, I must turn aside and see this great sight. You know, in that moment, God knew that he had him. God knew that he had him. He's the man that he was looking for. And he knew that he had him within his grasp. And Moses stood there and looked at the burning bush. And out of the burning bush, God spoke to him and said, Moses, Moses, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. And from that burning bush and from that experience, God would call Moses to deliver his people from the oppression of the Egyptians and from the power and the abuse of Pharaoh. It was a day just like every other day. It wasn't that Moses was out there looking for God. Moses is out there on a day just like any other day, not looking for God, not looking for a theological term, theophany. 
not looking for a revelation. Moses didn't set the time and the place. This was the work of God in the midst of a man who was living a comfortable, risk-free life but was about to be called from that comfortable, risk-free life to fulfill a mission that God had in mind, deliver his people from the oppression of the, of the Egyptians. It's obvious that where Moses is is where God wanted him to be at that particular time, a day just like any other day. And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of the other one. <laughs> I'm sorry, it just slipped my mind. Hmm? <laughs> Jacob, Jacob. Talk about nervous. <laughs> Haven talked about being nervous a while ago. He said, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses could not even look at him because he knew to look at him would be to die because nobody looked at the face of God. Nobody looked God face to face and lived to tell about it. And God said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know of their suffering. And I'm going to come down and I'm going to deliver my people from the oppression of Egypt and the taskmasters and the abuse and the evil of the Pharaoh. I'm going to come and I'm going to deliver my people and guess what, Moses? You're the man that's going to do it. A loose, uh, loose interpretation of the Hebrew was something like, wait, 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 wait. This is not my idea. This is your idea. Why are you calling me? That's a loose interpretation of the Hebrew. He said, who am I? Who am I that I should go and deliver the people the Hebrew people from the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Who am I? That's not an unusual question if you're standing in the presence of Almighty God. Who am I? Who am I that I should go? This was your idea. Surely there's someone else that can go or, or go and do it yourself. <laughs> I'll watch. Who am I? It's not an unusual question to ask when you're standing in the presence of Almighty God and you're being called to go and to fulfill a mission and to set the people free. Any of us would feel inadequate. Nobody is going to feel adequate, gifted, ready to go, fired up in the presence of Almighty God. Who am I? Moses is not the last to use that word because Gideon would use it. He would say, who am I that I should go because my clan is the smallest of all the clans in Manasseh. And I'm the youngest. Who am I, said Gideon. Who am I, said Isaiah. For I'm a man of unclean lips. Who am I, said Jeremiah. For I am your young boy. 
I'm too young to fulfill what you're asking me to do. Who am I? That's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate question that any of us would ask. In fact, God has a history throughout the Bible of calling those that have a less than stellar resume. If you look back at the people God called, it wasn't people that we would choose, but God would see something in those people as he sees it in you. That you are called apart to fulfill a mission of God. Who am I? Who am I? God has a history of calling those who are inadequate, limited, those who have abundant excuses. But you see, God always calls us with two promises. God promises us when he calls us that I will be with you. I will not leave you. I will be with you. So there's a promise of God's presence that there's nowhere we will go that God is sending us, that God is not already there at work. John Wesley would call it prevenient grace. There's nowhere we'll go that God's not going to be with us if we're called to be in a particular place at a particular time to fulfill the mission of God. And then God promises provision. He will provide whatever is necessary to make up for the limitations that we have to compensate for our inadequacies, to overrule any objections that we have. God will provide the resources that are needed to fulfill that which God is calling us to do. Go in faith and go faithfully, for we know that God is with us and God will provide. God will provide. Moses stammered, who am, I to, who am I to say is sending me? And God says, you tell them that I am has sent you. I am who I am. God will provide that which is needed to make up for our inadequacies and our limitations. And Moses is caught. Moses has no way to win this argument. There's no way that Moses is going to get out of this call to go and to rescue God's people from the oppression of the Egyptians. There's no way. See, there's no excuse that will excuse Moses from going and fulfilling God's mission. Because God has a plan. God has an idea to rescue his people. God has a desire he has a will to rescue his people. And as with Moses and throughout the scriptures, though God, we know God has the power to do it on God's own self, by himself. But God always calls to go with him a partner, a human, a person, a man, a woman, a youth, a child, God calls someone to go with him and to be with him, to be his agent, because God, yes, could do it alone, but God chooses to use us as his instruments to fulfill the will of God and the desire of God. 
Moses has no way out. He will go. He is the one that's chosen, a murderer on the lamb, limited, inadequate, insecure, but yet he will go. And he will be the one that God uses. It's day one for Moses. Day one of a new day, a new beginning. A new day, a new beginning. Day one for Moses and a beginning of a, a pilgrimage in which he will fulfill the will of God. It's day one of a beginning that's going to test his faithfulness. Do you see... The faithfulness of Moses was not found in just his willingness to go. The faithfulness of Moses is going to be judged and is going to be determined by all the successive steps that he takes afterwards. I will go, says Moses, for you will be with me and you will provide for me. And Moses, the faithfulness of Moses will be determined not just in his willingness to go, but the faithfulness of Moses will be determined by his, the successive steps that he makes to fulfill God's will from that point forward. I was appointed to start this church in 1994. Susan and Mandy and Ben and I moved to Madison. We bought a house over the internet with Polaroid pictures. Remember Polaroids? 94, a lot has happened since then. We had no land. We had no people. All we had was a vision of a congregation on the west side of I-55 of the United Methodist Church. So I came. I said yes. I had other opportunities. I had other options that were given to me. One was to go to Meridian and serve a church in Meridian. One was to come here and start the new church, and I chose to come here to start the new church. I don't know why, <laughs> but I did. We started knocking on doors. We started trying to find and identify people who could be a part of this congregation. We started trying to find land where we could build a church. Land in Madison was expensive. At that time, of course, even more expensive now, but at that time it seemed insurmountable to pay $30,000 for an acre of land. And land was scarce, to say the least. Those are the beginnings. Those are some of the day ones of Parkway Hills United Methodist Church. Out in the foyer out here in the narthex, there's a video playing of a service from April the 9th, 1995. That was the service when we were actually constituted as a United Methodist Church. And some people would say that that was the day one of this church, but we had a lot of day ones. We had a lot of beginnings. We had a lot of opportunities to start over and to do things differently or to do things better or to do things according to what God is calling us to do. One of the first things that we did was we hired a consultant out of Nashville, the Board of Discipleship of the United Methodist Church. His name was Paul Goodson. Paul Goodson came down and he met with the leadership of this church. By then we had put together a core leadership and we had uh, leaders in this church and 
he came down and met with us and he looked at the demographics of Madison and he looked at the projected growth of, of Madison County and the surrounding area and we, we prayed about it. We spent a lot of time in, in, in study and devotion and prayer and Paul Goodson developed this master plan for us. And he said, you have the potential to be a 4,000 member congregation. He said, we don't want to be that big. He said, well, how big do you want to be? He said, well, we'd like to be 15 to 1,800 members at our peak. So we developed a master plan for 15 to 1,800 members. This is phase one. This is the future fellowship hall of a larger master plan for these eight and two-thirds acres here, or eight and a third, whatever it is. But this is phase one of a master, larger master plan. Phase two is right across the way. There's a whole master plan of other buildings that will be developed on this site in the future, God willing, and your billfold willing. But that will come, that will happen in time. I remember started thinking back and I remembered three pivotal decisions that we made early on that I think were important to the life of this church. One was when we got the original estimate on this building, we were a hundred member church and we got uh, an estimate on what it was going to cost to build this building plus about 5,000 square feet that would go extend out to the, to the west toward the education building. The estimate came in at, a, at an amount that was beyond our ability to pay. There's no way that we could have built and paid for what was the estimate that was given. So we had to have a meeting. Good Methodists that we are, we called a committee together. So we called a committee meeting. We had uh, the building committee chair, Marie Owen. Marie is here today. She was the building committee chair for the building of this first building. Couldn't have done it without her. Marie was there, our architect Larry Albert was there, our landscape architect Ed Blake was there, I was there, our contractor Greg Seidler was there, our structural engineer who I've tried to remember who he was, I can't remember who he was, but the structural engineer who was trying to find a way to build this building on Yazoo Clay. And I want to tell you that was one of the most remarkable meetings that I've ever been a part of. Every minister longs for a committee or a group of people to work together the way they did that day. We immediately cut off the 5,000 square feet. We knew that that was out of the question. And then we started looking piece by piece, what could we do in order to make this? We had been in the school long enough. We were ready for our own place, our own home. We were ready to develop the property that we had bought. How can we make it happen? And piece by piece, the members of that group spoke up and said, we can do this. We can do this. If we do this, this will save us X amount of money. If we do this, it'll save us even more money. Larry Albert felt strongly about uh, what he called the doghouse, which is up above the stairs of this building over right around the corner here. He called it the doghouse. He felt strongly about keeping the doghouse in the plans, and he said, if you will keep the doghouse in the plans, he said, I'll pay for it. This is our architect who makes money designing buildings and saying, I will pay for this if you will keep it in the design. 
Ministers long for groups of people to work together for their own, for the good of the community and not for their own good. It was a wonderful meeting. And finally, we got down to $1.4 million. And I told them, I said, if you will guarantee me that phase one will not exceed $1.4 million, I think we can do it. And we did. I got you in debt. <laughs> $1.4 million. I didn't sign the papers. John Yeager signed the papers. Discuss it with him. <laughs> oh, this is great. That was one event. That was a new beginning. That was day one of a new beginning that would challenge our faithfulness from that day forward to become all that God had called us to be as Parkway Hills United Methodist Church. By the time we got into this building, we had already outgrown it. We never even dissolved the building committee. We reconvened the building committee with some new members uh, as our membership had grown, and we started looking at phase two. What can we do? And it again seemed like it was just an impossible thing to build what we built over there was in the neighborhood of $2.3 million. And I know I'm talking a lot about money, and talking a lot about membership, but that was a significant thing to us in the early days in the history of this church. $2.3 million on top of a $1.4 million debt for a church that was still in its infancy. We, we looked and said, just don't know how we're going to do this. Charles Dunn and I, Charles Dunn was the chair of the building committee for phase two and Charles Dunn and I would sit down and we would just kind of pull our hair out. Charles didn't have much anyway, but then we would pull our hair out trying to figure out what was the answer to move on to give us the space that we needed to fulfill God's vision for this church. And we looked at all the options. We couldn't see that that was an option. We did a capital funds campaign. We didn't get the results that we needed. And I just, I, honestly, I got to a point that I said, this is just not going to work. We're not going to be able to do this. I got a phone call one day. It's Phyllis Nowicki. Phyllis called me. She had talked to Charles or talked to somebody, and she said, well, Bruce, I hear that you say that phase two of the new building is not in the cards. I said, Phyllis, I just don't know how we're going to do it. I just don't know how, how, how we can fulfill that. She said, well, I just wanted you to know that you're playing with the wrong deck. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what Phyllis did. I don't know who she talked to. And I don't know what happened. I don't know what the dynamics were going on behind the scenes. But that time, that day, the laity of this church took responsibility for the future of this church. And the later laity, the membership of this church, the laity stepped up and said, we can do this. And we did. Not my doing but God at work in the lives of this congregation and the lives of the people who came to be a part of this congregation. The third thing that I thought about was a time when we were running about 300 members. Now, I know I'm keeping you a little long, but I hadn't preached this year. <laughs> I didn't preach but once last year, so I've got a lot to say. Um, but we had about 300 members, and we were really struggling. We were burning a lot of people out. 
We had a potential to be a 1,500 to 1,800 member congregation. We had about 300 members and we were exhausting our financial resources. We were exhausting our volunteer base and we were struggling to go on. And I started doing some research and study. And I found out the reason we were struggling at that point was because we were a middle-sized church. A middle-sized church runs about 300 members. And a middle-sized church is a hard-sized church to maintain because of the financial demands on a limited number of people and a limited volunteer base. And so we had an option. So I called the leadership of the church together and I said, we got an option. We can stay a middle-sized church and eventually we'll revert back to a small-sized church or we can make some decisions and make some sacrifices tonight to become the large church that God has called us to be, that I believe that God had called us to be, that, that, that had the potential to be, that, that we could achieve. I said, we can make some decisions tonight to become a large church and become who God has created us to be. Let's do it. Another one of those times when the people who came together worked for the common good and not for the individual good. They were concerned about the future of the church and we decided that night that we would do what was necessary to become a large church and we would make those sacrifices financially or whatever was required to become the church that God created us to be or called us to be. It's incredible. Incredible. A lot of you know these stories. Some of you were here during a lot of this. A lot of that happened behind the scenes. You might not were aware of that. A lot of you have come since then. A lot of you have gone. I noticed the list on the altar table up here for the, whom the Christ candle is lighted. Hard to imagine the number of people that have gone out of the life of this congregation. And that's not all of them. There are others that lost early on before we had a building. But you have made it possible for us to be here today because you have committed yourself to be a part of something that's bigger than yourself and you work for the common good rather than the individual desires that you may have because you see the potential and the fulfillment of God's plan for this church. So we had three day ones, building phase one, building phase two, and making a real commitment to become the church that God had called us to be. Day one in new beginnings that would challenge our faithfulness from that day forward to become the church that God had created us or called us to be. Day one, a new beginning, a new day, a new beginning. We ought to use that as a slogan sometime. Actually, we've already used it, probably used it up. You are at day one. You are at day one, a new day, a new beginning, a blank sheet, a clean slate, no debt. No debt. Where do you go from here? What do you do now? Now I know that it would be easy to look in the past and, make, and focus on mistakes and failures and to make excuses. See, it's easy to 
cling to the past and make excuses when we have an opportunity to rise above the past and make a difference. It would be easy to look back at the failures, the, the lean times, the, the, the struggling times, and, and to make excuses about moving on into the future. It'd be easy to do that. It would be easy to sit back and think about, well, look at all the great things that we've done so far, and we don't have to do anything now and sit back on the laurels and the accolades of our accomplishments in the past. And I use the word our because you will always be a part of me. It'd be easy to become complacent in a time of comfort. We have no debt. We just sit back now and cruise. Let the breeze run through our hair. It'd be easy to do that. It'd be easy to be filled with fear about a future that's cloudy and uncertain. But faithfulness is not going to be determined by our past accolades. The future and faithfulness is not going to be determined by the comfortable state in which we find ourselves right now. Again, I use our because I feel such a part of this place. Faithfulness is not going to be judged by studies and projections and discernments and dreaming. Although that's a significant part of moving forward, that's not where faithfulness is going to be. Moses was not just faithful in saying yes. Moses was faithful in going. Faithfulness is going to be determined by your intent to go step by step with God from this time forward. The next faithful steps. Your faithfulness is going to be determined what you do from now on. How do you arise to the occasion that you have before you? How do you walk intently with God into the future that God holds for you, in which the, the future in which God walks with you and God provides with you? It's easy to cling to the past and make excuses. It's a lot harder to rise above the past and make a difference. This option is yours, the choice is yours as a congregation, as individuals, in determining what next faithful steps are for you as a congregation or what is in the next faithful step in your life. I read a story the other day about the Egg Bowl. I'm a Mississippi State fan. We don't get to gloat very often. Uh, but it was a five minutes, see, people are leaving. <laughs> it does wonders to build up your self-esteem when you're a preacher and people get up and leave. But it was at the five-minute mark at the end of the Egg Bowl last November. And Mississippi State was up 24 to 16. Mississippi State had driven all the way down to the Ole Miss one-yard line and had a chance to score a touchdown that would put the game away. For some reason, one reason that I have not yet understood, Will Rogers decided to run the ball. Will Rogers doesn't run the ball. Will Rogers throws the ball. But he ran the ball and fumbled on the two-yard line, on the one-yard line, and Ole Miss recovered. Had a chance to put the game away, but he, and. But Will Rogers ran the ball and fumbled, and Ole Miss took over. They will 
they would drive down and score a touchdown. Will Rogers walked off dejected. He knew what had happened. He knew what he had done. And he was dejected when he walked off the field and he walked back to Mike Leach expecting that he was going to be chewed out for running the play that he ran and fumbling the ball on the one-yard line and giving Ole Miss an opportunity to come back into the game. He was expecting to be chewed out. But he got back over to Mike Leach. And Mike Leach just spoke to him out of the philosophy that he preached the whole time throughout his career. Nothing matters. Nothing that has happened matters. The only thing that matters, said Mike Leach, is the next play. The only thing that matters is the next play. If we get the ball and we need to score in order to win, Will Rogers, you're going to do this. Will didn't get the opportunity in the Egg Bowl to drive down to win the game, but he did in the Rely Quest Bowl, tied 10 to 10. He directed a drive down, which resulted in a field goal and a victory. And they ended up winning 19 to 10, but Philgo would have won it for him. And he said all he could think about in that final drive, driving down to kick that field goal to win the game, was the next play. The next play. Nothing matters. Nothing that has happened up to this point really matters. The only thing that really matters is the next play. You can cling to the past and make excuses. You can rise above the past and make a difference. The choice is up to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.